0: Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs.
1: Good afternoon. afternoon. Thanks for coming today. Um, My name is uh, Crystal Frank, and I'll be your moderator for today's session. Um, Before we begin, I'd just like to remind everybody to please turn your cell phones off, or at least on silent. And uh, today's session, um, like all of our sessions, is going to be recorded. Um, So, SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization and uh, we rely on the contributions of members and our session attendees to continue our work. Um, For those of you that are members, we'd like to extend our thanks and for any of you that would be interested in becoming a member, um, please come and see uh, Lisa either during lunch or after our session today. Um, At the center of your table, you'll find uh, little black baskets. Um, You can pay for your lunch by placing $11 in the basket. And we'd just like to ask if you could designate a person from each table to kind of count all the monies to make sure that it's uh, the right amount before one of us comes and collects it. Um, I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners, um, the University of Lethbridge for its support and uh, distribution of our notices, um, Country Kitchen Catering for the Great Lunches, Shaw TV for broadcasting sessions Sunday at 4.30 p.m., and to the Lethbridge Herald as well as all other media for covering SACPA events. So today's session is called uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Why Does It Matter to Us? Uh, We're going to follow a format that includes 25 to 30 minutes for the presentation, um, followed by lunch and then a question period, and our meeting today will end at about 1.30. Our speakers today are uh, Julie Graham and Mike Frank. Julie Graham is the Human Rights Education and Campaigns Coordinator for Kairos. She is from Coast Salish Territory in B.C., and is an educator and writer, and has worked on right relations and indigenous rights for the past 20 years. Um, Mike Frank is the Director of Operations for the Blood Tribe Department of Health, and his background includes working as a health support worker with the Indian Residential School Program. Um, let's uh, give Julia Mike a warm welcome.
2: Good afternoon, everybody. It's a privilege to escape Toronto and to, uh, to be with, here with you today. And I want to thank SACPA for offering this chance and also Kairos Lethbridge, which is the local expression of uh, the National Kairos Coalition and a fantastic group. But I will gladly sing their praises more extensively after my 15 minutes are up. And I want to take the chance also to thank the uh, Kainai First Nation, um, whose traditional territory we're gathering on today to listen and to learn, and just to acknowledge we're also within Treaty 7 here, and recognizing the relationship that that treaty is supposed to be about when it was signed by our collective ancestors. And may our words today uh, help contribute to a different treaty understanding between our peoples. So I welcome the chance to say more about Kairos later on. I've been told to stick to 15 minutes, and I'll do that. Um, We are very often most known for the rather public defunding of us that happened uh, through the the, uh, decision taken by the federal government. But we're much more than that, and I would really welcome the chance to tell you more about that after. But for the moment, I'll just say that we are the social justice coalition of 11 Canadian churches and church organizations, so that's the national body. But at our heart and roots, we are also a grassroots community-based movement, and Kairos Lethbridge is one of about 130 Kairos communities across the country. And we've worked on right relationship and Indigenous rights for about the past 40 years, beginning with one of our predecessor coalitions, Project North. But what I want to talk about today in just a minute is why we decided to publicly get behind the the work of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Indian Residential Schools, to give it its full name. So first, I just want to also acknowledge that I, as Crystal said, grew up on uh, Coast Salish territory, Stoltloat Nation to be exact, but I didn't know that. I'm the daughter of British immigrants uh, who came here after World War II looking for A better chance in life. And I wound up really not knowing anything about who was here long before me. And that's been one of the things, I think, that's really driven my own personal life as well as my professional life, the stories that we just don't know as non-Indigenous or settler people. So I think in that context, um, I'm going to say I want to address myself primarily today to the settler immigrant newcomer folks who are here, the non-Indigenous people. I think Indigenous communities already have their own very diverse understandings of why the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is important and what some of its flaws might be. But I find that my people are the ones who have a lot of catching up to do on that question. So Truth and Reconciliation Commission, what does it mean to us? Why go? Why go listen to the stories? I want to start with a practical point and say that as Albertans, you've got a tremendous number of opportunities coming up very shortly. Uh, The TRC is entering the final public year of its mandate. Um, It's going to wrap up in June 2014 at an event in Ottawa. Um, And so you folks here are entering um, amongst the final five community hearings that the TRC is going to be holding And those will start June 6th to 8th in Red Deer, and we have resources with uh, all of the dates and locations of those hearings. Edmonton will host the final national event for the country this coming March. And at those events, former students um, and others directly impacted by the schools tell their stories. It's as simple as that. There's sometimes other things that happen around that, but that's the heart of what the TRC is about. And just to give you a little bit of context, there are currently around 80,000 survivors of the schools in Canada today, and there were over 150,000 Indigenous children in the schools at the height of that system that ran from roughly 1880 to the 1970s, although the last school didn't close until 1996. So we're not talking distant history here. And the settlement agreement that was reached between the survivors, the federal government, the churches that ran the schools, um, and, and indigenous groups, they all came together to create that agreement, recognizes 139 residential schools. So not, not a small number. And here in Alberta, they were around 25 schools. So I think actually Alberta hosts the highest number of schools in the country. So we're not talking about an insignificant topic here. I, I would say to you today that the TRC gives us a unique space that will not soon come again. A lot of survivors are elderly. Um, many miss the chance to tell their story before they died. And so if you go, you will hear a lot of pain and a lot of courage from your neighbors, quite literally your neighbors, in some cases, if you go to a community hearing. And you'll have a hand in, in helping to break a very long silence. And you might come to understand each other here in Lethbridge and in blood territory in a different way, in a way I think that's, that's desperately needed. So that's my pitch for why you should go, and I'll keep building on that. But I, one of the things I, I, I kind of uh, smack into right off the top when I talk about this at workshops or do media interviews is, well, why is hearing these stories important? Why would you go listen to them? Because you go in knowing you're going to hear some difficult things. So why would you choose to go? My friend Annette Sear in, uh, in Saskatchewan is, is Métis in Pasqua Cree. And her dad went to the Labrette School near Fort Capel, Saskatchewan. And she uses an exercise in, in workshops in which she invites people to imagine being in a community with no children. And she's not asking people to imagine yourself being Aboriginal or Inuit or Métis. She's asking people to imagine your community without children. And then to imagine if your kids were taken away, often forcibly by order of the government and with the collusion, active participation of uh, four churches. Would you want people to listen to that story of your kids being taken away? If that happened for three successive generations at minimum, would it be all the more important that you have a chance to tell that story? And then imagine if you were taken away, along with all the other children your age. If you were physically punished for speaking your language, for having the wrong color skin and the wrong hair. If you were placed in an underfunded institution in which abuse of all kinds was very common, and we now know that that has been thoroughly documented as part of the TRC's process. If you lost your ability to parent and you lost your language and you were told your culture, whatever your culture is here today, if you were told that that was wrong through and through, would you eventually want to tell the truth about that experience? And if you became gradually and painfully aware of the connection between those residential schools that you had to go to and the current levels of substance abuse and other forms of abuse in your community, would you want to talk about that? And would you hope someone would listen? Would you hope that the societies who created those schools would also listen? And finally, would you want to make sure that future generations of Canadian children knew the truth so that it couldn't be denied and it couldn't happen again? That's what the TRC, in my view, is is trying to create the space to do. And the reality is that for decades, these stories were silenced. And... Survivors, for example, that I've heard in hearings talk about uh, being married to their spouse for 40 years and the spouse not knowing anything about what happened to them in the schools. And for my community, for the non-Indigenous community, I would ask how many people in this room who are non-Indigenous learned anything about residential schools in your secondary or post-secondary education? Put your hand up if if you learned about them. So about four people, and I think we're about 80 people here today. So in many ways, those stories are still being denied. Um, If you... Next time CBC does a big story on on the TRC or residential schools, check out the comments in the social commenting section that are standard fare on any website these days. And these are things I also hear at at, at workshops when people are honest, when non-Indigenous people are honest about their reactions... They hear about residential schools and the survivors' stories, and perhaps because they're afraid to hear it, they say, well, all they want is money. Or they say, well, I didn't do it. I wasn't even born when those schools ran. Or they say, those schools were how it was done to everyone in those days. That comes up a lot. Or they say, the abuse is exaggerated. And the one I hear most is, why don't they just get over it? I don't know that all these people intend to be cruel. You'll always get cyber bullies, of course, but most people, I don't think, really have an understanding of how those words cut. And really the intent is mostly irrelevant because it's the impact that counts. And the broken relationship that shapes these comments is, I think, all too clear for people who are on the receiving end of them. I'm a member of the United Church, and our first and to date only Indigenous moderator was the very Reverend uh, Stan Mackay, who's Cree, who's a survivor of a United Church-run residential school. And he once said, in in his very uh, direct Stan fashion, if a relationship is broken, it's broken on both sides. And that might sound screamingly obvious, but as with most things Stan says, if you really reflect on it, you realize we don't ever talk about how uh, settler society, the majority of our culture, is broken. And indeed, that is one of the few concerns I have so far about the TRC process, because so desperate is the need for there to be space for the survivors to finally have the chance to tell their story, that we're not really hearing anything from those who are still alive who ran the schools, who were staff at the schools, the people who created the many layers of legislation that enabled the schools to exist for as long as they did. So often at hearings, I'll sit with the question, well, how broken is my culture? How broken are the people who ran the schools? How do we get around to acknowledging that? This isn't a criticism of the TRC. It's an acknowledgement of a, of a dilemma. And my concern is most of us non-Indigenous people have yet to ask how our country could have done this how the churches and government could have ignored such extreme levels of abuse, how, quote, killing the Indian in the child, unquote, could be official policy, and therefore how we can together make sure it never happens again. And I guess, well, I don't guess. I know we should be asking whether it is in fact still happening in different ways. I think the Indian residential school system lives on today in many of our policies, whether we want to admit it or not. So again and again, I've heard survivors ask the question at hearings after they talk about what they endured. And they're, I think, asking a very honest question. How sick could they have been to have done this to us? What's wrong with them? And it's not asked in a spirit of hate that I've ever heard. It's a question when you're living with that abuse to ask, how how could someone have done this to me and to us? And I have to say, I don't think any of the churches or any of us as Canadians has yet honestly answered that question. So therefore, how can we take responsibility for what was done and for what continues to be done if we don't ask these questions? I was at an event, a Kairos event with Ellen Gabriel, quite a well-known Mohawk uh, spokeswoman. And uh, at that event, she was saying her definition of reconciliation is not having to say sorry twice for the same thing. And I don't think we're, we're quite there yet. I have some hope we can get there, but I don't think we're there quite yet. So where do we go from here? Where do we go if we acknowledge the relationship between Indigenous people and settlers is broken? Uh, where, where do we acknowledge that after 250 or 150 years of colonization and assimilation and separation, we have very poor relationships with one another and that many non-Aboriginal people don't even realize that? I think the TRC is one, one space in which we can both enter and at least start to have the conversation. It's space for silence to be broken by the survivors, but it's also space in which the rest of us can listen and ask the question, how can I be challenged to change how I do things and to do my part towards starting to heal that, that relationship? And I just want to mention, I've got the less than the two minutes here, but I, one thing I, I want to say to kind of add to that is that a lot of people don't know that the, tr- the TRC is not funded by the government. There was a settlement agreement that was created. The survivors got together after that very long, painful fight, and they said, we want a space where these stories can be told, and we want a space where the Canadian public can hear them. And so we're going to use our settlement money to set up a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I think that speaks volumes of the survivor's commitment to right relationship. I think it speaks volumes of the generosity of Indigenous cultures that my people have tried so hard to eradicate. And it really challenges me to say, well, what is my response going to be if I have this just incredibly generous space that is being offered to me? And let me stress, every person in this room can go to the hearings. And a lot of people don't know that. And I want to ask you to make sure that more people know that they are welcome to go and that they have a very important role to play there. I'm going to close with, uh, with some words from Chief Shining Turtle of White Rich Whitefish River First Nation. He's involved in Idle No More, and Idle No More, I think, is one of the big hopeful movements uh, that is offering us a way forward together. And he wrote this open letter to non-Aboriginal, non-Indigenous Canadians. And he says, The round dances you see in your malls that are blocking your roads, are both a call for change and a celebration of our culture. They are organized by our youth, and I am proud to watch them find new and visionary ways to combine new technologies with Aboriginal culture and a commitment to self-determination. They are also dances for life. They are call-outs to remind us all to respect the earth and our relationship with each other. The circle of those dances is not complete until you join us. And again, he's speaking about non-Aboriginal people here. I know it is up to you to know your own journey. I know, however, that many of you have hearts open to hear this call, and so I speak these words into the circle between us. Let us work together to ensure respect for earth, the water, and our fellow creatures. Let us work together to honor the sacred treaty relationship with half of one another. And let us work together to creatively, peacefully, and firmly push our government to repeal or amend the recently passed laws which harm the earth and us all. And in that spirit, I thank you, and I hope these words will uh, lead you to come out and to listen at the extraordinary opportunity that is the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Thank you.
0: Here. Good to hear y'all, good to see y'all. So, what I'm going to do is bring as much as I can cover. What I'd like to add as a caution here, as a caution here, this is what I'm about to discuss is actually a year study at the University of Lethbridge in our Native American Studies program. A lot of terminology is going around here, so let's clear that up right away, and then I'm going to spend a short time after that. So, here we go. So, the issue behind Let's let's just say the Indian problem that had existed for Canada was they said, let's come along and let's label these uh, savage, these savage children. We need labels so we can compartmentalize them. So I'm going to hit you with some like that real hard in your face stuff. So the idea is not to make you feel uncomfortable, but just to retell the history at the time. So here we go Aboriginal people is a very confusing term, and I hope in the short slide presentation you'll see exactly how confusing matters can be when you label the indigenous people so indigenous people aboriginal people according to the charter is where we get our roots section 35 sub 4 okay so we had gone into this place where we're saying you're referring to the people without regards to their identity and origins here we go american indian that's an american term that gets confusing so American Indians, primarily in the States. We don't use that in Canada. I'm doing this for an effect here. So, The band, an Indian band, a gathering of a formal group, for example, in the Blood Tribe. Blood Tribe gets confusing. The band council, elected leadership on reserve, uh, a municipal style of government where a chief and council are elected using very similar rules to how uh, the Lethbridge City Council is governed. One mayor, not alderman, but councilman, Right. Bill C-31, women who would lost their identity, their Indian statushood, upon marrying someone who was non-status. Upon receiving their Indian statushood back in the government in the 1980s, they were referring them to themselves as Bill C-31. So they continue to use the label. Eskimo, derogatory. I would say almost equivalent to the N-word. It's not a very nice term. However, it's been grown through history where people have said, oh, they're Eskimos. No, please don't use that term. It's Inuit. First Nation, First Nation of the First Peoples here, that's who the treaty was signed with. When we talk treaty, we're not talking Aboriginal people, we're talking the First Nations, because we exert our nationhood by saying we were here first. The Idle No More movement expands on this more. They run with this more. So that's where they get the roots and their authority to do so. The First Nation matterhood here is where Indian bands had replaced it with First Nation. I hope you're all taking notes. Just as a like. So, as we move on here, Indian, the term Indian. Indian is actually actual legal term in Canada today under the Indian Act, federal legislation. Indian is where, in, in our lingo, oh, who is he? Oh, he's, he's an Indian, right? There's no, it's not derogatory, it's a legal term. What I put on here is that this different status categories of Indian is where we get going here. Status, non statushood. Status Indian, we're registered with the government, meaning Mike Frank and his son are registered. However, there's different categories in this now. The statushood Indians that we have registered, we've got to make sure that we compartmentalize them according to our federal policy. Non-status Indians, okay, those status Indians that are registered but do not have statushood according to their bands. I put on here is that many women had lost their Primarily women. Very few men had lost their statushood, unless through enfranchisement. Treaty Indian. We belong to the First Nation or to that of the Crown. I put on here is that there's many debates over this. I consider myself a Treaty Indian because every year I get five dollars from the government. So, so you know, in twenty years I'll have. Let me take my shoes off here. So okay, okay. The Indian Act. This is the harmful piece of legislation. People have said it's antiquated, we need to remove it. That is a whole other discussion that we could have. It's the only existing legislation that governs First Nations, Aboriginal people on reserve and those off reserve. We can talk about the different stereotypes that have resolved from this. Point is to say, in 2008, INAC, meaning Indian Affairs, which is now AANDC, but we've known it as Indian Affairs from the 70s, their budget was $9.3 billion. $1.8 billion was that for administration across Canada. The Indian statushood, my legal status to be recognized under the Indian Act. The Inuit, the proper term for people of the North. What I put on here is also, they're not covered under the Indian Act, but yet they were affected by enfranchisement and the push West for colonization. Okay. So, having heard all that terminology, that's how we test our university students. They need to know that stuff. Because as they go forward in the world, we expect them to use critical thought and apply the correct terminology. No different than you would do in science, management, or in the world's best discipline, philosophy. Right? It's true. It's true. Okay. So here we go. What does that mean today? The individuals that you see in downtown Lethbridge, the ones that... Let's just, like, we're going to cut through the bull here. The Aboriginal, the First Nation, the status Indians that you see walking around who have broken spirits have been through a process where their souls have been removed. And they have physical scars from it. What I'm talking about is the fact that Indian residential school had taken the innocence of children that harm was done right here to every member of my family and extended family and brothers and sisters and aunts and cousins. What I'll share with you is that during my time here, I worked for the last year out of the Lethbridge Lodge attending what's called residential school hearings, part of the IAP process. And I had to tell Crystal, I can't do this anymore. I've heard over 300 stories of residential school survivors of how they were treated. I can't share too much but what I can share with you is that children as old as four years old were taken away from their homes, and they didn't see their parents until again until they were 12, 13. at the hands of the church. A lot of Aboriginal people blamed the church because they were the ones at carrying out. In the church's defense, they were contracted out. Without the church, not much would have happened. We would have seen uh, a smear on culture. There we just wouldn't be standing here. So in many ways, I view it as a positive thing. The church was there to help survive this. They helped our people learn to read and write. They've helped them to get through this process. So it speaks well to the beliefs that both cultures would share. The TRC was meant to address these harms. For example, I'm going to talk a bit more graphically here. I, there's, a, there's a residential school called St. Mary's and St. Paul's on the blood reserve here and uh, my dad ran away from there when he was five and a half. The RCMP scout went and got him at our home by Spring Cooley and Grandpa was jailed because he didn't want his son to go. So to send the lesson, they jailed Grandpa, uh, Tom Three Persons, the rodeo cowboy, first cowboy from the Calgary City. And they fined them $50. So in, in uh, 1940... Uh, uh, 19, sorry, 1953... That's a lot of money. So what Grandpa did was, well, we can't pay this. Well, you do the time. You're going to spend eight months in jail. So Grandpa Tom, as I get where my in animosity from, he says, too bad. He told one of my relatives, I've got money saved. It's in those, go get it. Pay our fines and we're out of here. So therefore, you know, Dad's, that was at Christmas. And so he was back. And the way he was treated was... I can't even talk about, because I'll start breaking down and crying here. The fact is that that was one of the positive stories. Okay. There's a certain culture that exists when the truth and reconciliation is meant to capture those type of stories and to say, we need to remember Canada's history, the negative and positive. So here's what we're doing at the Blood Tribe. We have the bit of the background here, it's, it's a little too much to gather, but... Here's a process. So we said, as part of the Blood Tribes mandate under the health department, we need to recognize and, and show the, back to the community that their words are not forgotten. Okay, In our Indian culture, we talk a lot. right? That's the oral transmission of the culture. That's how our stories get passed down. We don't write them in memoirs and stuff until recently, but we do get them on many stories. So we've gotten this entire process I'll run through shortly, but I want you to show that as this had come into place, this. One minute, okay. we have seven community projects underway. Those are monuments, those are billboards, those are community works, these are pictures and graphics to tell stories like what had happened. And here's why as I close this on a very uh, stern note. The children that have been through this process have had their existence erased. So any culture that they were carriers for that generation has also been erased. So there's certain words that don't exist anymore, certain songs that don't exist anymore, certain people that don't exist anymore, because children who had TB had passed away too, and we don't know where they are. So we don't know what they had come. A mother, for example, had told me that she had left her son in residential school when he was six, and that was the last time she saw him. Until summer, they told her. she Upon going to pick him up ready for the summer season, she said, Uh, the nuns and priests said, well, he's not here anymore. So deal with it. And next. So those are the powerful stories we've had, and there's a lot more we could have in discussion format, but let me close on this point here. I would like you, you know, I'm always available in the community, there's many good people in here, but the healing is what the TRC is meant to capture. Part of the TRC's mandate is this will be happening in many respective roles. So because my spouse, Crystal, is the punctual one in our marriage. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, I married a non-status person, so so that's a whole discussion. Our son is status, so that's how the bloodline works. Really confusing on that end. So it's meant to be light humor and kind of enjoy a good meal here. So let me close on this point. I would like to thank you for your time. We'll be certainly discussing this a lot more, and it's If you Google Indian Residential School Program, you're going to find a lot of stuff. Stats closing here was the residential school program initially started with $60 million, and the government thought that was enough. As of two weeks ago, the payments paid out have been $1.3 billion, and they're growing. So it's expected to triple that. In closing, thank you for your time. We'll see you here afterwards. Thanks.